IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the Principal Political Analyst for IBN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests, so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guests today are Scott Graytech and Chad Peace. Mr. Graytech is an anti-corruption attorney who is the Advocacy Director for the United States Office of Transparency International, the oldest and largest anti-corruption coalition in the world. He manages the office's legislative and regulatory agenda, including its work on political integrity and democracy reform. Over the past few years, he's helped pass over 20 state and local anti-corruption reforms, as well as designing legal challenges to the United States Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United versus FEC. Mr. Peace is the founder and president of IVC Media, LLC. He's a nationally recognized leader in election law and voter rights, a partner at the law firm of Peace and Shea, LLP, and the legal strategist for the Independent Voter Project. In 2017, Mr. Peace was honored with the 17th Annual Anti-Corruption Award by the New York Independence Club, and more recently, he authored a successful election reform initiative in San Diego and was recognized by the American Association of Political Consultants as one of the 40 under 40 industry professionals to watch. Given the elevated interest in this year's election, Mr. Graytech and Mr. Peace are joining me to discuss a component of that process that has generated a lot of interest over the last few presidential cycles the Electoral College. We're going to talk about what it is, why it arose, and whether it should remain in place. So without further ado, Scott and Chad, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Thanks for having us, TJ. Good to be with you. Scott, let's start with you. Give me a primer on how the Electoral College came to be. So the Electoral College was designed out of necessity coming from the Philadelphia Convention among the states before the United States was truly a national country. So this is when you had the 13 original colonies that were bound together by the Articles of Confederation meeting in Philadelphia to presumably only update those articles. And instead, James Madison from Virginia shows up with a plan to totally rewrite those articles and to start a new constitution and kind of springs it on the delegates there. They're concerned that without a strong national government, they could either be reconquered by the British Empire or by other European adversaries. And so it's really important to them that they leave Philadelphia with a strong centralized government that is actually capable of taxing the colonies, of having combined military support for the colonies, and really updating the United States to meet some of the counterparts in Western Europe. So the Electoral College is largely seen as a compromise between some of the larger states, and I mean that population size, and some of the smaller states. So under the Articles of Confederation, you were only able to get national government action if you had unanimous support from all the 13 states. And so obviously this meant that when it came to raising taxes, or really doing a lot of just the essential functions of running a national government, the states weren't able to agree. There was always going to be some dissenting voices. And so the national government couldn't act. So they knew that when it came to choosing a head of that national government, the president, that simple majority rule, getting a president elected through popular vote, was going to be off the table because the smaller states were never going to agree to that. So through some 
mechanics brought in from the Articles of Confederation, like the Three-Fifths Compromise, they were able to develop a system where, while not unanimous rule, majority rule could be achieved through a balance in the Electoral College. What this means, essentially, is that each state is given a number of electors. These are constitutional officers that are chosen by state legislatures. They're given a number that is equivalent to their congressional delegation. So that's the number of House members that they have and two senators. And those folks are the ones who are actually elected on election day. Even though you may be casting your vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump, you are in fact casting it for electors that have been chosen by the state's political parties, typically earlier in that spring. And those folks are the ones who formally cast that state's votes for president. Whoever gets a majority of those votes, both for president and for vice president, becomes president through the electoral college. Thank you. And Chad, from a constitutional standpoint, how are the electors chosen and who do they formally represent? Depends whether you're asking a question, who are they intended to be selected by and who are they today? I think a lot of the discussion we have today about whether we should get rid of the Electoral College, reform it, whatever we're going to do, takes as an axiom that the way electors are chosen today, which is on a statewide basis for almost every state, for example, California and Texas, the, the reason why they're considered red and blue states is because the winner of the popular vote of that state is given to the majority winning party. And those electors actually go to the quote unquote uh, electoral college. They're really serving the party. Now, that's really out of conformance with the original idea of the electors is that they would not be selected by states to serve a party, but that they would be elected on a district by district basis and that those electors are actually, if you go back into the Federalist Papers, the electors were actually supposed to be devout of political purpose. In other words, they're supposed to just be everyday citizens that were elected for the sole purpose of casting their vote for president of the United States. So when we have the conversation about electoral college, I think a lot of what's missing today is the substantial difference between how the electoral college was envisioned and constructed and the way it's applying today, because I don't think anybody in their right mind would suggest that the electors today are devout of political ties. In fact, most of the electors become electors by being high up in their political party. That's an excellent point. And I think it's a point that is lost upon a lot of people when they engage in this debate. Scott, let's talk about the Electoral College from a historic standpoint. There have been five different elections, Adams back in 1824, Hayes in 1876, Benjamin Harrison in 1888, and then George Bush and Donald Trump more recently, who failed to get the majority vote and yet still won the presidency. How does that play into the angst? Because there was a 112-year gap of no anomalies between Harrison and Bush. Yeah, though there was a really close case in 1968 when George Wallace was able to win electoral votes in the Deep South and the Republican Party seeing that potential outcome actually supported getting rid of the Electoral College. And I think it only failed in Congress by half a dozen senators' votes. So the effort to change the system or scrap it has been a constant throughout history. Just to go to Chad's point and really underline this, when the framers got together in Philadelphia, 
not one of them thought that this system was going to actually come down to a candidate for president getting a majority of electoral votes. They all thought that George Washington was the singular nationally known candidate and that once he had served his second term, the electoral college's system of each state will vote for the politician that they know. Folks in South Carolina are not going to be familiar with politicians in Pennsylvania and vice versa. They thought that each state would, through its electors, cast their vote for who is well-known in that state. And then it goes to Congress. If nobody wins a majority of electoral votes, the process in the Constitution says that it goes to the House of Representatives. And the House has to choose with each state legislature getting one vote from among the top five candidates. And so it would be the House that chooses who the next president is. And the Senate does the same for the vice president. None of the framers thought that they were going to enter into a system where there would be nationally known candidates that could get a majority support. They thought they were ultimately going to retain the power through the House of Representatives. Nobody imagined that when Andrew Jackson had actually received a greater share of the popular vote in 1824, but because he didn't receive a majority, it got kicked to the House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives actually ended up choosing John Quincy Adams. So there was outrage there. There was outrage when disputed elections in two states in 1876 led the major parties to compromise where they would allow the Republican nominee, Ruth for B. Hayes, to become president. But in exchange for that, they would end Reconstruction in the United States, one of the most disastrous, if not the worst, outcomes of the Electoral College. Obviously, in 2000 and 2016, were flat out instances of minority rule where the candidate that got fewer votes in a national election ended up becoming the winner of the Electoral College. But I think the through line is that when it was designed, the actual consequences of this was never imagined. But they thought that it would be changed within a couple of decades of it being in existence and that there have been consistently this drama support to change it. And it's only when our collective living memory fails us and we forget how disastrous its outcomes can be, we kind of take our foot off the accelerator here and we lose sight of the fact that this was designed for a very different country than we are today. Gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break and discuss some of the pros and cons of the Electoral College when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IBM's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guests are Chad Peace, an attorney and nationally recognized leader in election law and voter rights initiatives, and Scott Graytech, an anti-corruption attorney who is the advocacy director for the United States Office of Transparency International. Let's look at the pros and cons, gentlemen. Chad, let's start with you. What are the pros in favor of the argument of sticking with the Electoral College as is? I think you got to see the interplay between the Electoral College and kind of the larger political process first to see how all of this stuff is interconnected. And then also a lot of people are arguing about the value of getting rid of or keeping the Electoral College through the lens of, are we a democracy or are we a republic? We get this all the time. If you follow IVN, a lot of people pound their fist on the table. We're not a democracy. And a lot of other people say, of course, we're a democracy. Just look to the Supreme Court's rulings. Well, the reality is we are a democratic republic and we have principles of both. One of them, and Scott talked about a lot of the history of that, what made us a union was the agreement that 
states have wide latitude, especially when it comes to elections. That's why you basically have very limited federal control over the election processes itself. And so one of the pros of the Electoral College is that you're really giving control to the states so that they maintain their right and their control over the way we elect a president. Let's take, for example, you get rid of the Electoral College completely and go to a popular vote. Well, now you're kind of putting states like Rhode Island and smaller states at the whims of states like California. Now, if you take that further, and now you start talking, look at today. I forget whether you think fraud occurred or it doesn't or whatever it is. One state in a popular vote system, let's take a state like California, if that state wanted to change the election, they could create a situation where three, four, five million votes overwhelms the outcome of some smaller states. So if you're a smaller state like Rhode Island or any other small state, and you're in a republic where the basis of you participating in that republic was that your state maintains a level of power within it, going to a pure popular vote system would essentially give up your sovereignty, at least when it comes to electing the president. So in there are a couple pros for it. One, it maintains the state rights, the 10th Amendment right of state sovereignty to make some decisions. And two, it mitigates against the potential for mass fraud. The more it's a national decision or a national popular decision, fraud only has to occur in one place to have the consequences spread across the entire country. So you tasked me with being a devil's advocate. So there you go. Chad, let me ask you from a legal standpoint, in the event of a recount, Kennedy-Nixon type scenario, or even this year where you've had challenges on the legitimacy of the election. What about standing? In 2020, we just had the Supreme Court turn down a lawsuit from Texas because they lack standing, essentially. Would Texas have had standing if the popular vote was determinative? That's a very great question, right? And that's what I mean in terms of the interplay between our whole political system or body of laws and everything else is that if you can't contain grievances with an election within a state, then I would have to argue that there's an extreme likelihood that you'd have to give Texas and every other state standing over the votes in, in every other state because every state is participating in that popular vote pool of votes. And so necessarily, if you're going to have a one person, one vote standard, which the Supreme Court has already articulated, and those votes are measured against each other, not contained within a state for that state's electors. Pretty hard to argue that one state doesn't have standing to challenge the results in any other state. Thank you. And Scott, can you argue the cons of the Electoral College? Yeah, you give me the easy job. I mean, this is the only system of self-governance or decision-making I think anybody on this podcast can think of where a minority gets to govern a majority. This is an undemocratic and totally unrepresentative process. Look at our other institutions of governance in this country. In order to get a bill passed in the law in the Congress, you need to get a majority of support. In order to have a Supreme Court decision be favorable to you, you need to get a simple majority of the justices to agree with your position. The Electoral College, the only and yet perhaps the single most consequential part of the United States government where the head of the national government can be elected with a minority of voter support. 
So anytime you have a democracy that doesn't live up to its simple fundamental ideal of being the product of those who it governs, you have an immensely flawed system from design. You talk about instances of potential of fraud. I think it's actually quite the opposite. You had in 2000 a single state having so much emphasis put upon it in Florida that the weight of the country's political future rested on half a dozen counties in one state because their outcome determines the swing of the Electoral College. Same thing happened in 1876 with a couple of states being that determinative. Same thing happened in 1968 with George Wallace winning a handful of deep south states. So it actually puts states in a very difficult position and shows that if there is a weak link in your election infrastructure administration, that that could be responsible for an upending an entire national election. I'll also say the simple math that went behind this at the outset, where folks said, well, you're not going to represent the rural parts of the country as much as you will the large metro areas if you get rid of the Electoral College, we know that that's just simply not true. Presidential candidates are spending something like 95% of their time in 12 swing states. They're not going out to the Wyoming's or the Rhode Island's, either side of that spectrum, big states, small states, whatnot. There are plenty of rural voters in California. California is essentially a few big cities and then a large rural area in between them. They're not being represented by the Electoral College well. There are no candidates that are coming out to campaign. So that dichotomy has proved itself to be false. When you lose legitimacy and confidence in your election, then especially at the very top of the ticket, the most visible, it strikes a chord to the heart of your democracy, and it makes people question the integrity of every decision that comes after that. And that's certainly been the case in the 2000 elections in 2016. Well, before we take a break, let me ask one real quick question with regard to something you raised, Scott. If you had California and Arizona at odds, there was interstate differences. Should we resolve those by Democratic vote? How do you mean interstate differences? You mean like in a court case? Disagreement over interstate commerce or something to that regard. If popular vote is always the democratic way of doing things, why don't we resolve interstate differences by a democratic vote? I think if there was like a territorial dispute between two states, then that is precisely what the federal courts are designed for. And the federal courts, you know, this goes to a federal adjudicative body as opposed to a democratic body because they're supposed to be applying law, right? The courts would look at the agreements that designed the contours of those states, how they got to their territories, and they would make a decision that is based on the law and the facts not on whether you could have, I guess, a national election that would be determinative on the border between California and Arizona. It's sort of a bizarre thing. That's where states meet over those kind of conflicts. It's either through the larger deliberative body of Congress, or if it's an adjudicative legal setting, it's a federal court or possibly the U.S. Supreme Court. I think based on Scott's answer, I think the first answer is I can think of several instances where you have essentially minority rule on legislation that would in that case that would be every single vote that the senate ever votes on right because the senators are elected not on proportion of population but you have two senators per state so the argument can very well be made that all of our legislation is done by a minority vote right the the issue i think here alludes back to my question is between the balance between a democracy and a republic and i think if this country is a republic and the president is elected by that republic, 
where's the democracy between the states, right? So now depends on whether you're looking at a democracy on the voter level or democracy on the republic level. If we're going to have a agreement among the states to remain a republic, then the argument should be made that the electoral college actually preserves the democracy at the state level. On the issue of fraud, I mean, yeah, you gave the Florida example, but my question is, okay, well, what if you have a state that swings the entire popular vote? Now you've magnified the situation in, that we had in Florida in 2000. You could have one municipality or one state affect the entire popular vote. So I don't think you get rid of fraud and that Florida situation actually did was at least contained that within one state in electors that a certain number of electors on the popular vote side, you have, there's no containment at all. But I think in viewing that, I mean, maybe there's a balance between the two and maybe we ought to look at how many people can be affected by a problem in one municipality rather than a question of whether we ought to get rid of the electoral college altogether because those things do occur. Well argued, gentlemen. We're going to take another quick break and discuss how to address the Electoral College issue when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guests are Scott Graytack, an anti-corruption attorney who is the advocacy director for the United States Office of Transparency International, and Chad Peace, an attorney and nationally recognized leader in election law and voter rights initiatives. Scott, let's start with you. What would it take to abolish the Electoral College? So unfortunately, the Electoral College is cemented into the Constitution itself in Article 2. So you would have to amend the U.S. Constitution. You can do that two ways. One is by getting two-thirds majority of Congress in both chambers to support an amendment. Then that goes to the states, where three-quarters of the state legislatures, respectively, will have to approve that amendment for it to become law. The other way to do it is for the states themselves to convene state conventions. They can do that with two-thirds of their respective support, and then that change would also have to be approved by three-quarters of those state conventions across the country. It's a very high bar to change the U.S. Constitution, and so it lends me to think that the way this will be resolved is, is through some sort of political compromise, through a political moment where both parties see it in their best interest. To, to ultimately get rid of the Electoral College. Gentlemen, what are the alternatives to preserve the integrity of our elections and make the process more equitable? What form should any type of change take? Are we looking at a direct democracy or perhaps an allocation of electoral votes as per Nebraska and Maine? Shed, what would you recommend? I'd probably recommend reinstituting the Electoral College because there isn't an Electoral College to abolish these days. As we talked about earlier, the electors were supposed to be people that ran for the sole purpose of electing a president by district. So I think one way you could preserve the Electoral College or return to the Electoral College and accomplish a lot of the things that we're trying to accomplish by making it more democratic is to simply do that. Have people run for the purpose of becoming elector at the district level 
instead of, as we do now, having electors who are selected by a party to be sent on a winner-takes-all basis per state. Now, that would make every single district in the country a potential place where you have to go and you have to campaign and get elected. So rural parts of California, there would be a race in, in cities and in, in parts of New York City there could be electors sent to vote for a Republican. I think that would substantially democratize not only the election of the president, but the discussion itself, because issues would be different in those places. And that would require to have a lot broader conversation than the narrow conversations we have right now, where political operatives go and say, okay, 80, 90% of the votes are secure for the Democratic or the Republican Party. Now, how do we fight for the other 10, 15%? They would open up the conversation, say, well, we got you know 538 districts across the country. And from a political operative perspective, you can't simply create a narrow two-sided debate and focus on that and be able to win votes in East County, San Diego, which is going to be substantially different from downtown San Diego. Scott, what would you recommend? Yeah, I think it's time for us to join the rest of the developed world and the developing world, frankly, in having direct election of our national leader. So we are the only advanced economy that has designed such a perplexing and preposterous system for getting our head of state into office. If Chad takes maybe a half step in that direction by having the president essentially being elected on a congressional district by district basis, which is certainly a good reform. It would just, again, require amending the U.S. Constitution because the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to choose how their electors are chosen. So even if you did win that district in California, say a Republican was able to win a district that otherwise California is totally uncompetitive, they were able to win a district in rural California the state legislature of California would ultimately have the ability to choose their electors. So it's not without a constitutional barrier to even get to to Chad's prescription, but I'd say let's join the rest of the world and how we choose our elected leaders. Let's become the full democracy that we were designed to be by having the candidate that wins the most votes be the one who takes office. And are we okay with the fact that many times that affect almost every time in history, no one gets 50% of the actual potential vote. I mean, in 2012, for example, I'm personally familiar with that one. Barack Obama won a quote unquote mandate with 32% of the actual registered vote. I think I'm going to do a poor reconstruction of a Winston Churchill quote and that democracy is messy and complicated, but it is better than all other systems. So yeah, so the person who wins the majority of votes in all 50 states gets to become governor, and it shouldn't be any different at the national level. Well, Chad and Scott, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your organizations? And Chad, let's start with you. Well, I'd encourage uh, listeners to go to ivn.us where we cover election reform news or independentvoterproject.org, which is a publisher of IVN. Independent Voter Project has recently filed an amicus brief in the case against the Commission on Presidential Debates and is currently in litigation against the California Secretary of State challenging the constitutionality of California's semi-closed primary system. So if you're really that wonky in election law or you're interested in some legal battles that don't fit between that red versus blue box, 
visit independentvoter.org. Thank you, Chad. And Scott, now it's your turn. I'll give a plus one to Chad's organization. I hope folks can check it out. It is hopefully a new way of doing politics more productively in the country. My organization, Transparency International, our website is us.transparency.org. You can follow some of the campaigns we're working on. We're going to be unveiling in the next month a really ambitious anti-corruption agenda that touches on domestic corruption issues, issues around political integrity, as well as global, you know, international anti-corruption issues and the role the U.S. plays in it. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at TransparencyUSA. Well, Chad Peace and Scott Graytech, thank you so much for sharing informed perspectives about the Electoral College. I think a lot of people have an opinion these days, but it's often one that their party of choice or the media has directed them to take. And it's great to be able to discuss the issues from a more factual basis. Beyond that, I want to wish both of you continued success in all of your political endeavors. You're welcome back anytime. And thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you, TJ. Thank you a lot. Always nice talking to you guys. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.